1: I'd never pick up a drink again in my life. I will never pick up heroin. I would never pick up cocaine, never pick up pills, any of that crap. If I was to pick up a drink right now, I'm going to chase it with a 45. I will not put my family through that pain. People have cried enough for me.
2: Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. Today, we bring you part two of the story of Howard Heathcote. If you didn't hear part one last time, we suggest you go back and listen to that first. As Carla spoke with Howard in part one, we learned about how he defied the odds. Despite a difficult childhood, a life of addiction and crime, and spending nearly a decade in jail, he eventually managed to turn things around. Howard is 53 now, and in this episode, we'll hear about the more recent years in Howard's life and what he's doing today. He'll also tell us about life in jail, his recovery, and we learn why Howard is now such a strong advocate for preventing addiction and runs a Facebook page to help. At the end of Part 1, Howard had explained to his now-wife's family about his past. They are completely accepting, but that wasn't quite the case at first.
1: They were extremely, extremely wary of me. I mean, at that point, I was 215 pounds, and I looked like I just beat the crap out of 10 guys, completely bald, full of prison tattoos. I taught myself that I learned one thing. I will never, ever, ever in this world tell someone what I'm going to do ever again. Because for years, I told people what I was going to do, and they would watch me fall on my face to a point where they didn't even believe me anymore. So I told myself, no longer am I going to tell people, I'm going to show people. I'm going to win through my actions every single day. Every single day when I put my boots on the floor, it's going to be about everyone else in my life and not about me. And I do that every single day. Not only my family, but my my prior family. They are so proud of me and where I've come because I was the baby of the family and you know, we lost enough. We lost enough family members. You know, I have nieces, you know, well, my, my nieces, their children. They're in their 20s now and, and they're going through issues. You know, they have addiction issues. My wife lost, we lost our daughter, Kelly, 2015, 4th of July, out in California. Died in a rehab.
3: What, she died in was she died in a rehab? What, what do you mean she died in a rehab?
1: Yeah, she died in a rehab out in California. There's litigation going on right now, so I can't, but they are going to be found in neglect. And I had helped raise Kelly since she was 12 years old. She was very, very depressive. We hit it off. Her youngest, my wife's youngest daughter, we hit it off. Every morning I would get up at 530 and I would drive her two towns over so she can get on the bus with her friend and go to school on her friend's button because that was the only way she would go to school. And we we formed a bond. And the day that her mother came downstairs and showed me the top of a syringe top, my entire world just shattered. My face went everything drained out of my face because I ran away from all that. I wasn't expecting it. And like I said, i'm you know, I met a woman who was your typical soccer mom, your typical soccer family, you know, hardworking suburban people, and this train just ran right through their house. Through every all across America, all across America, and that's what happened. It just steamrolled through the suburbs, and so we went along. I and I, I chased her. I chased her, even when her family couldn't anymore. I continued because, you know, I just I couldn't. Until I remember the last time I talked to her. I drove three hundred miles from one part of Florida to the other all by myself to visit with her for a half hour. And I told her, I said, I'm the only one left, Kel. Your family can't talk to you anymore. And she loved her family. She loved her family. That's why she wouldn't come home, you know? And I said, what are you going to do when you pull that insurance card out and it doesn't work for you anymore? She had been through probably, 10 or 12 different rehabs over five years, and she ran up an insurance tab of a million and a half dollars that insurance paid out. And she went to a rehab in Florida, and we were trying to get her to come back home to go to Team Challenge, and she didn't make it out in California. She died in the bathroom of a rehab, and she had OD'd. She had OD'd two days before that in one of the other facilities that they also had. And there's a lot of things that happened with the doctor as well that was connected to the rehab. He prescribed her six medications in one day. The thing, I think she at that point, there was Xanax, uh, Klonidine, Depico. I think there were a few other ones that he prescribed her that particular day. And she OD'd. They brought her to the hospital. And the next day when they brought her to the other treatment center, they brought her back to the same doctor, and he prescribed her two, two more medications. And so that was her tragic story, you know. And how did she
3: get into drugs? What was her
1: her i her thing was she was she had started at a young age, not with with prescription medication. The doctors she couldn't, she wasn't focusing on school at a young age. So just like, just like I, I and I say it on my page all the time: ninety percent of the kids that are addicted now the younger generation between the ages of maybe 18 and 30 all came around probably about the same way. They were probably all on some kind of mood-altering medications as teenagers or as adolescents. And it just kind of, you know, once, once your body starts going to, once the brain goes from the adolescent brain and starts to push for that final adult, chemical balance and pushing you into adulthood, your body's changing, hormones, you know, testosterone, everything is going crazy. Those mood alts are no longer doing what they were specifically designed to do earlier because it's like adding, it's like adding any kind of chemicals to a brain that's trying to go through chemical changes already. And so I think a lot of that leads to experimentation or trying to regulate, which leads to abuse and-
3: I agree. A lot of self-medication that kids do to deal with other stuff. I know. It's Absolutely. So...
1: And teenage years are the most important in the brain. Between the yeah. ages of, of 11 and 18 years old, that is the most dynamic chemical change happening within the brain. And it's very hard And when you try to explain that to people. Because we've come, become a country over the last 60 years of Medicaid to Educate. As sad as it is for me to say that, classrooms have gotten bigger. Before, it might have been one disruptive kid in a class full of 20. Now you have a class full of 30, and you have six disruptive kids. It's very hard. And the first thing an educator says is we recommend that maybe you give them something to help them control while they're at school.
3: Yeah, yeah, I agree. That is definitely, that's interesting. Medicaid to, to educate.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's, it's been such an ongoing thing since the 70s that now it's almost standard practice. It's become almost the standard practice.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, your kid's out of control. He's, you know, he's interrupting five or six other kids. Well, why don't you take all the kids that are kind of out of control and put them in a classroom where you can exploit the talent? It's not that they're not learning. Uh, my granddaughter suffers from ADHD. And she could sit here and watch TV, play with mm-hmm. Play-Doh and anything. And I can ask her math questions and she'll give me the answer without ever taking her eyes off the TV. She's listening to what I'm saying. And that's okay with me because she's absorbing it. And I can ask her two hours later and she'll give me the same answer. So there's a different way to teach. And I, it's crazy for me because I'm, you know, I'm banking because I'm looking at the crazy overall theory. If you break it all the way down to an evolutionary thing, it's where the brain is going. It's where the brain has been wanting to go. And yeah. technology and evolution and space and time and moving forward is dictating that this is where the brain wants to go. And it's very hard to get people that have been studying things for 20 and 30 and 40 years to tell me, oh, well, maybe you're right. It's very hard to get people to maybe be a little humble. You know, it's hard for me coming, what I'm trying to do with the page to get people that have a Harvard law degree or a Harvard medical degree or has written 10 books to understand what I'm saying. You wrote 10 books. Did you ever bury a needle in your arm? Did you ever go through the detoxification process? If you look at the forums and the the things that come up, the conferences that come up, and you look at the people that are sitting on these forums the ones that have written these books, the PhDs and the and the MDs and the and everything else, I would never ever, ever, ever disrespect anyone's education. I know they worked very hard and spent a lot of money to get their degree. But knowledge and experience and understanding is the key when it comes to trying to treat an addiction. You cannot tell me that they would understand what it's like to bury their daughter. They would not understand what it's like to bury a needle in their arm. They would not understand what it's really like to feel that detoxification process. None of them have ever seen it. None of them have ever gone through it. You can tell just by their resumes. And I hate to say it like that, but I think it's time that we maybe turn that table around and put the people that actually maybe have been through this and that can articulate it and, and be the liaison between these educators and these doctors and these physicians and these psychologists, they say that they're listening, but they're not listening. You know, they'll have one person up there that'll tell their sad story in which it is a sad story. And then they'll all glad ass and tee and, you know, share dinner later on thinking about what a great job they did. And they hope they sell a lot of books. You know, when really, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's become a capitalistic, just another capitalistic venture for so many individuals with this epidemic. And if you're not in it for the humanitarian end, then why are you even in it at all? If you're not in, in it to really make a difference, then why are you even in it at all? You know, do the real work. Don't talk about the work. Do the work.
3: I mean, it's, it's interesting because I feel like it's getting a lot of press because it's so out of control. But I still think that majority of people still don't get it. You know, they kind of think it's not going to happen to them or somebody they know. They don't realize how it's like everyday people.
1: Here's what you're going to be seeing. I don't know if you had a chance to read anything on the page, but I did do a part about the future and what's coming. One of the biggest mistakes that we've made over the last couple of years, as a matter of fact, we've done it already twice. We've One thing I've learned throughout years and years of of looking at things, is if you don't understand your history, you are going to repeat it. You may not repeat it in the same way. You may repeat it in another dimension, another another social physics, but you're going to repeat it if you don't change it. The first thing we did is when oxys, everybody was getting addicted to oxys, The parents were getting addicted to them. They were coming home to the medicine cabinets. The kids were getting addicted. The neighbors were getting addicted from the medicine cabinets as well, from the neighbors. And so what they did in an effort to stop that is they pulled oxys out of society, pretty much dwindled it right down, restricted it. We got to get these out of the medicine cabinets. These kids are getting addicted. Everybody's getting addicted. When they did that, they created the heroin epidemic can't get the oxys no more. What I was getting for $20 is now costing me $80. I'm just, I have to go back to dope. I'm going to go and I'm going to do dope. They get dope because three bags for $30 will get them five times higher than one eighty pill. And now those 80 pills are through the roof now. I can't afford them. It's basic economics. So all of these people switch to the cheaper drug heroin because it's a cheaper drug and the fact that they can no longer get the oxys that they were addicted to. So that's what created this first wave. And then what we have done now is if you look at this history, we just took the other most two abused pain medications out of society, or we've restricted them, which is Percocet and Vicodins. So you're going to start seeing over the next, it's already starting to happen now, But over the next three to five years, you're going to see a flood, and I mean a flood, of 50- and 60-year-old hardcore Percocet and uh, Vicodin addicts that have switched to heroin because for years they were able to float along buying their illegal prescription Percocets. I know some people that will buy 300 Percocets in one month. That's over for him. He's going to switch to heroin. Nine out of the ten people that I know that were doing this have already switched to heroin. They're already on a Suboxone program. So this is what's coming. This is, and there was probably oxys rolling in society for a short period of time before he realized Percocets have been around for almost 40 years. So it's something to think about. You're going to have 50 and 60 year old addicts coming in for rehab and coming in for treatment and coming in and getting on Suboxone and, and, and ODing and just dying because their bodies aren't going to be able to handle the withdrawal from a Percocet. A percocet withdrawal is horrible. <laughs> probably one of the worst withdrawals ever it really is. And so that's a sad thing to say, but that is what's coming in the future. It's already upon us. And it's because that, like you said, there's still a lot of misunderstanding. Our government, in an effort to try to do what's right, you just, there's 20 times more Percocet addicts in this country than there ever were. Oxy addicts, there's got to be, just comparatively in the timeline. So it's something to really think about. And it's very hard for me to convince people of that. You know, I, I'm a futurist. I, can, I, I know what's coming in the future when it comes to this. And I'm trying, my, my goal of the page, the goal of the page is to kind of try to be a bridge. A bridge between educators, a bridge between psychologists, a bridge between actual addicts, a bridge between parents. I've been all of those things. I've been in every single dark corner that this disease has to offer. Every single one there's not one corner that i have not lived in and it's very hard for me to get people who have pigeonholed themselves in a one way direction with this epidemic to maybe change the way that they're thinking it's all about it's very hard for me to tell someone that you may have to eat a little bit of crap and humble yourself like every single addict is told to do when they walk in the doors the professionals may need to do that they need to do that and it's very easy I had to eat myself out of a cesspool of crap. A cesspool. And after a while, it doesn't taste so bad. But you've got to be able to do that, and you've got to be able to be humble enough to do that and not have ill will and not feel that you want to be the next superstar or that you want to make another million dollars off of selling a book because now you're just taking from people who have already been take, had enough taken from them. And I think it needs to be a grassroots effort
3: well, and yeah, there are there certain like documentaries or movies or something that you think do a good job of also helping educate people? Because sometimes people are very visual, like something that helps people to better understand like the life um, of addiction, even the life, the life in jail. Like I feel like there's a lot of misinformation out there, but a lot of people are so media hungry that that's what they do. They, they want to watch movies and
1: yeah, and it's it's real funny because you you know you could watch uh, you know they have lockdown and lock up and sixty days in, you know I, I see them all the time on here and I'm like it's it's real good when you could watch that from your couch for a half hour and think that that's the way it is, but when you live that for years within that system and within what oh, that I does, know. It's just be what horrible. It is,
3: and those, sh- it's, those it's, shows it's, you know are kind of also faked. I mean
1: they're, they're faked, and I can tell you one thing. No prison drug dealer is going to stand up there and no righteous gang member. I mean, true gang member is ever, ever going to go near anyone with a camera. <laughs> they're just, they're just not it's absolutely taboo. Would you, you
3: ever know. have gone in front of a camera when you were in jail?
1: No, never, never. I wouldn't even think about it. It wouldn't even have been a thing. As a matter of fact, there would probably be mandate that if anyone talked to the cameras with anybody when i used to talk to a guard in prison i would make sure that there was a, a someone of a different status that wasn't within my circle of people standing right in earshot when i talked to a guard every single time i would bring one i'd bring someone with me because i came from the old school way of doing it i needed to have a witness because i would let him let everyone know that i was asking this guard for a roll of toilet paper and not not telling him that somebody's getting beat up in the corner over there Do do,
3: do the prisoners really run the prison?
1: At any given time, they can absolutely take over a block if they wanted to, only because of the overall share size. You might have one guard, you know, that's overseeing a block that has 100 inmates in it. But in most systems now, they're able to electronically lock that block off. So those 100 guys in there could kill the guard, they can kill each other, they can do everything, but they're not getting out of that block. But what happened was is when they started instituting rules and sticking to these rules and none of the convicts rose up against it, then they just literally started shutting things down. I know in Connecticut, no more than 100 inmates are moving at any one time, and it used to be there would be 3,000 guys just moving wherever they wanted to all day long. I can get up in the morning and leave my cell and go to the other side of the prison and just hang out in a cell over there all day, smoking weed and getting tattoos or doing whatever I wanted when I was a kid. But
3: but how do you, how do the drugs get through the system? How do they get into the jail so people can do drugs?
1: Most of the time, well now nowadays most of them come in through either a dirty guard, who doesn't last long, because they have guards now that police the guards. So usually you might get a guard and get a connection and and have it for maybe six months or eight months, but eventually they either get told on or they move them to a different prison. Very rarely, unless it's someone coming actually into the institution, very rarely do drugs come in through the visits anymore because they pretty much stop. I mean, where you have conjugal visits, yeah, but a lot of places, if you're a level three or a level four, which is a higher security risk, you're automatically behind glass so for you to get a touch, one-on-one, hands-on-hands visit, it may be rare.
3: So how would you, how would you get the weed and Like, how would you get stuff Like, as I, I, I've heard, you know, like I've talked to so many, not so many, but different inmates, and they're like, yeah, no, I did drugs the whole time in there. So they must be coming in.
1: The drugs are easily obtainable either through, you have guys, that, I mean, they have a med, med call. You have guys in the prison that are getting anything from Ritalin to methadone to uh, fentanyl patches. I mean, literally, when I was in, guys were standing in the med line and getting fentanyl patches. They were standing in line and getting morphine patches, some lingual patches, or they were getting pills. And it's very easy. You put the pill under your tongue and then you sell it. A lot of guys will bring them in through, you know, the prison wallet. You know, a lot of guys coming in right in here in, in county jail county jail, you could be there from anywhere from you know, two weeks to up to a year, maybe even two years, like in, in Connecticut. There's drugs all the time because you have people coming right in off the street, people coming right from the courthouses, right in off the street. When you get up into the prison system itself, where the big boys are, the drugs don't come in like that. And I don't care who you are, anyone on this planet, don't believe anything you've heard, because I'll tell you right now from someone who had control over those things, then you're not going to hear it on National Geographic. There is no way on this earth you are going to maintain a heroin addiction in prison, whether it's either in county jail or whether it's in prison, prison. You may be able to offset your addiction with pills until you are out on the street and then go right back to heroin, yes. In prison, the upper prisons, very rarely does Heroin come into the block, and it's not consistent. You might have one guy who may be able to get heroin every single day for a month, but then that's it. It's gone. Either someone tells on him or it just gets washed up. Connections are very fluid, so you would not be able to maintain an actual addiction. You may be able to, after months of not using in prison, somebody comes into the block with dope. You'll get it, sniff it, and get high for sure, but then now you're just going backwards. As, but you will. It just doesn't happen. I don't care what jail you're in and what prison you're in in any single state in this country. You cannot maintain a heroin addiction in prison. It's impossible.
2: Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, Matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with, at soundoff.network.
3: Can you get unlimited funds that you want um, sent to you in prison?
1: Yes. As long as people are on your books, you have to have a certain people amount of people on your books. You can get as much money as you want, and that is one of the big keys to, especially the younger generation of addicts, I should say. They're going to jail, and then they're calling home to moms and dads. I can't take it. I can't take it. First of all, because in their wildest dreams from their nice little suburban home, would they ever think that they would wind up in a jail cell? I do, I I was destined for one, you know, but I'm looking at the extreme opposite of my case. And so the first thing they do is they call home and I need money, I need money. Most of that money is being spent on drugs within the system. If your child says they need $100 a week, I survived on $7.50 a week in prison. For the first year I was in prison, $7.50. That's what I made in the prison kitchen. And that's what I survived on it's, you can survive on $10, $10 a week in prison, $10 a week.
3: Does that, how much does it cost to get a chocolate bar or a bag of chips? Uh,
1: Well, when I was, when I was in uh, a case of soups, a case of soups was um, $2 and 50 cents for 24 soups. A bag of coffee was $2 for a pound of coffee. Um, A candy bar was a dollar. Of course, you know, I ran a store and so I would, you know, if I gave you a candy bar this week, you have to give me two candy bars when you get your store next week. So that's how I ran a store, and that's how I kept up on. It was just a hustle that I had. If I will give you a bag of chips right now, tomorrow when your commissary comes, you have to give me two bags of chips back. You know, it's, it's just a barter system. Food and cosmetics are money in prison. Food and cosmetics, that's your money. You know, uh, deodorant is considered $2. A soup is 25 cents. So,, for a typical candy bar, it'll cost you a dollar from the commissary, and uh there were no cigarettes they, they had taken cigarettes out of my my particular prison at that time
3: and was it impossible to get access to alcohol?
1: Oh well, you can make it you can make it you can make alcohol in prison all the time. Guys would make alcohol in their cells all the time
3: do the guards do the guards frown on that or they let it?
1: Well, they, they come through and they do searches, you know, they frown on it when they see 10 guys on a tear in the middle of a fist fight and they're all drunk, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, but, um, it's very easy to make a, um, a regular cup full of pruno prison pruno. If you want to, I never, I never did. You know, I just, I quit everything the day I went to prison. So.
3: I don't know how you had the mental strength to quit everything in prison. Like, I feel like that's where I would need all that shit the most.
1: Well, it, it's, it's, it's definitely right. You know, if you want to really drown your sorrows even more, but it's kind of like all oh, the shit is what got me in prison and I had to look at it like that.
3: Yeah, it's pretty impressive.
1: It's easy for someone who's only got two or three months to say, oh, yeah, you know, I'll get through this and I'll be, when, you know, and, and just keep screwing around, keep getting high while you're in. It's very easy because you know you're going home in a couple of months. But when you know you're facing some long-term, long-term prison time. Things happen after two or three years of being in prison. Your mindset changes, your demeanor changes. Um, you kind of settle in, especially if you know you've got a very long time to do.
3: What about like a physical abuse, sexual abuse? Does that, how rampant is that?
1: It happens. I mean, it happens in all institutions. But I guess it, it started to change in the system kind of because you had gay men that are going into prison. So there wasn't really, you know, and it's okay now if you're gay to be gay, you know, when younger, when I was younger, there wasn't any of that, you know, if you're gay and then that's it, you're going to get beat up and you're going to be getting raped every single day. But now it's more and more prevalent. So I really think there's been more of a lax attitude. People that, guys that usually get raped in prison, it's purely a predatory power control thing the person that probably raped them probably had been doing that to other people throughout his life.
3: Would would you assume that rapist is gay or is that someone that just has got anger issues?
1: It's It's all about, it's all about power. I knew guys and I, it's sad for me to say this, but this guy, while he was in prison, he had someone in his cell that was, they were, they were, that was his lover. They were together. They stayed in the cell together and, but he was straight. He had a wife and he had kids. And when he would go to the visiting room and I happened to be in the visiting room one day, he was there. His, he had a beautiful wife, beautiful wife and two beautiful kids. And the person that he was in the cell with was, had AIDS, was, was gay, was a gay prostitute. And they had AIDS that were out on the street or whatever. And my only thought is, is this man, his wife doesn't even know what he's doing. And he's probably br- going to bring that disease home to his family.
3: Do you think that he was actually oh, like gay and just felt more free in jail?
1: It's kind of hard to say, you know, it's, it's almost like, um, it's not, I think with some guys it's about a companionship thing. You know, it's a companionship thing. It's having that, that companionship. In, in prison, everyone has a partner. I don't mean that in a gay sexual thing, but every guy that goes to prison, there's another guy that's their boy. That's their partner. You always have to have another set of eyes. If I'm getting a tattoo, I need you to look out. And that you was know, your, that you was your trust. brother
3: for you? That Was that your brother for you?
1: No, no. My brother and I, they had us in the same prison for, for a very short period of time. And then, um, he had been getting investigated for something that had happened years and years ago. And when they found out we were in the same prison, they moved him out of out of the prison that I was in. So we didn't have a lot of contact after that. No, I had someone, I had actually had someone who I, I literally still work with every day. He was my right hand. He was my eyes and he was my ears in the prison and I was his. And he had nothing to do with the people that I were involved in. And I did that on purpose. He was not involved in any of the gang like activities or inner workings of any of that. He was just a friend that I had had since I was a young kid. We had done time together for years and I knew that I could trust him more than I can trust my own family members within the institution because he wasn't about that.
3: Would you guys get to share a cell or, or no?
1: No, no, we, um, we were in the same, in the same housing block and we would, we would wreck together. We'd go out to the gym together. You know, we worked out together every single day. And we had done that, you know, when we were 16, 17, we were in, you know, we were in county jail together. So we had always kind of partnered up, you know, like that. It was just, you know, whenever I would go into a block and he would be in the next block, I'd try to get moved over into that block because it was security for me. When I'm down doing pushups on the floor, he's standing up watching what's going on around. And I, you know, and the same thing, you know, and, you know, his sister would send me things from home and I would, you know, I would, my, you know, my family would send him up some things. So it was kind of like, you know, it was having someone as a, that was completely on the outside, but I knew that I could trust turning my back on. Other than that, I didn't trust anyone else within the system, no one.
3: That just seems like so, like intense. Like, I don't know how you can go from that crazy childhood into jail, which is another set of rules. And now yeah. you're like the soccer dad.
1: I am. I am literally grandpa. I'm poppy. I, I haven't even gone full circle. I'm glad that I don't go first. If I go full circle, I'm back in the nut house when I was a child. I want to go back there, but I had, you know, there has to be a certain point where I had to consider myself recovered, you know, not still in recovery not struggling to recover, but physically, psychologically, mentally, completely, completely recovered. And I, I reached that point. I reached that point, you know, a long time ago, but now I'm really trying to understand really put that to use that because there is no going backwards for me because I would never, ever, ever, for one reason, I told my wife, this. my problem, biggest problem was alcohol. If I never pick up a drink again in my life, I will never pick up heroin. I would never pick up cocaine, never pick up pills, any of that crap, as long as I don't pick up alcohol. If I pick up alcohol, alcohol was my biggest demon. It's what started it for me at a very early age. Every time that I would go to prison, get cleaned up, the first thing I would do is go to alcohol, not heroin. I would go to alcohol then right back to heroin. It was a cycle for me. It was a cycle. And I tell my wife now, if I was to pick up a drink right now, um, i my way home from work, just say, screw it. Get a half pint of vodka, suck it down. I'm going to chase it with a fucking, I'm going to chase it with a 45. I will just chase it because I will not put my family through that pain. This family doesn't know that pain. And now they've known that pain all too harshly over the last couple of years. But I would never put my, my other family, my sisters that love me now, ever would I ever not for one second Nobody's going to cry over me anymore. Not like that. Not like that. People have cried enough for me. And I'm going to, if it has to be that way, then I'm definitely chasing it with a 45 and everyone can cry for me one more time and that'll be it. You know, and that's my philosophy. That's what doesn't keep me from not drinking, you know, or not using. I mean, those are just, you know, those are things that why the hell would I ever want to go backwards? in my life.
3: Do you think that your recovery is unique? I mean, out of all the people that you met along your life that came from similar backgrounds, similar experiences, how many of them are recovered now?
1: I probably, everyone that I've ever grown up with, they're, they're either still using or dead, you know, the percentage wise, geez, I don't know, six out of the people in my family are all dead, you know, I guess, you know, percentage-wise coming out of the, the prison system and not going back into it and learning that, you know, my goal should be what I'm going to do tomorrow and that my goal is going to be to, you know, drive a Mercedes Benz by the end of the week and have a house by the end of next year. You know, I'm out of prison. The first thing I'm going to do is go to my parole officer. That's my goal. But the thing is, is probably very very low, I'd say maybe 10%, probably 10% of everyone that I've ever known has come out fully on the other side, whether it's either through prison or whether it's through addiction. It's very hard to get out of it once you're into it, and it's very hard to accept the things that may not come back years down the road after you came become clean you know it's very hard there's a spoiled addict type syndrome that's happening within addicts where they they expect everyone to understand what's happening to them when they don't understand what's happening to them and then it's the same old well i have 3 months clean look at me and look at all the things that i'm doing look how good i look look how healthy i look and then they fall right on their faces because they relapse from psychological problems issues not physical when it becomes a psychological there's so many psychological things that happen and they wind up just falling right on their face and then there's self-esteem goes in the basement and they wind up in that cycle. But I would probably say maybe 10% of the people that I've ever known are still alive and still, you know, my kid's mother is probably one of them. I don't even know if she still uses boxing, but I have to count her as a survivor because she didn't die. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard for me to dictate. But coming out of the system, very, very rarely do guys get out because they get out and they go right back to what they know, right back to everything that they've ever done. You know, unless they make that conscientious choice that, you know what, everything that I've done has gotten me to where I'm at here. And then it's time for them to make that decision. But a lot of times they get pulled back into that. They go out, they hook back up with their wife who was never clean and never got clean or whatever or they go back home to their family and they've got family members that are still using, or they go back home to their friends thinking that they are strong enough and they're not. And they get pulled right back in. I got pulled right back to the kitchen table every single time I got out because of my environment. The only way I didn't is when I got out this last time, time, and I got completely out of my environment as well.
3: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, like, that's so interesting, 10%. And even your 10% of your cases aren't actually as recovered as you are, because probably your daughter's mom is just surviving still. I mean, she's
1: not, yeah, but it's not,
3: she's not, I wouldn't say she's recovered, right? She's just,
1: no, she's, she's still, you know, she still, you know, struggles with whether, you know, like I said, I don't know what kind of medication she's on. Me being fully recovered means that, you know, you've gotten past your Suboxone and your methadone as well, you know, to me. And, Again, I'm fighting an uphill battle with, you know, I'm not, again, I I have fights all the time on my page about, you know, my views on Suboxone and Methadone. My views on Suboxone and Methadone are based on everything that I've seen over the last 40 years. Methadone is just a new wave of Methadone. I mean, Methadone is, Suboxone is just a new wave of Methadone and everybody's getting on, but nobody's getting off and everybody's okay with it.
2: We appreciate Howard taking the time not only to share his story with us, but he's also been running a website and Facebook page, which now has over 6,000 likes, trying to bring attention to the opiate epidemic.
1: I'm kind of using my story as kind of like, you could believe the guy who wrote 10 books, or you can believe someone who lived this story. It's for everyone to decide whether they want to believe and take this as, as truth, as viable information from someone who's been there. I mean, I, there's no, there's nothing in this for me. I'm, there's no way I'm ever getting back all of the things that I've lost. No way, no money in the world is going to do it. It's just not going to happen. So there's no ulterior motive here for me, but to be a good guy and a humanitarian and try and show people that bridge and that, that fill those gaps in so we could all do productive work and, and, and maybe move forward and and really fix this problem.
2: You can find Howard's page at Facebook.com slash The Opiate Reports. We'll put all the links in the show notes for this episode at StandUpSpeakUpBlog.com. This has been Stand Up, Speak Up, the story of Howard Heathcote. As always, thank you for listening. Our show wrap-up is just ahead after today's song selection.
0: Johnny was a schoolboy when he heard his first Beatles song. Let me do I think it was, and from there it didn't take him long. Got himself a guitar, used to play every night. Now he's in a rock and roll outfit and everything's alright, don't you know? Johnny told his mama, hey mama, I'm going away. Gonna be a big star someday, yeah. Well, Mama went to the door with a teardrop in her eye. Jonas said, Don't cry, Mama. Smile and wave goodbye. Don't you know? Yeah, yeah. the world go by surprising it goes so fast Johnny looked around him and said well I made the big time at last don't you know
2: Listening to our music selection today, that was Shooting Star, performed by Linda Nuska. And now Carla joins us for the show wrap-up. So, quite the story. We learned some more fascinating stuff in in part two with Howard. And once again, all I could think during a lot of that was just how surprising it was that, I guess, basically what what he was saying. He didn't sound like a criminal. He didn't sound like the kind of person that had gone through all this stuff that he had actually gone through.
3: I know he sounds very educated. He is very self-educated and he did do a lot of research and studying while he was in jail. I feel like he's someone that is probably extremely resourceful, knows how to uh, manage different situations and change based on those situations because he's definitely a survivor. I mean, to to go into jail and then be able to get up to a, a higher status and be making the rules is pretty impressive.
2: Yeah. And that brings us to one of the things that he said was about, he, he estimates anyway, 10% of the people that he knows that were either addicted in some way or just not leading a good life, ended up in jail, whatever the case. He said only around 10%, he thinks, actually were able to get out of that life and turn things around, basically like he did. So the the odds are so low. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's remarkable to get this uh, this type of person to chat with and hear what it was like on the inside and what his his whole life was like uh, like as an addict and and be on the other side of it like the 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 parts where he talked about what jail was like was just fascinating.
3: Well, I think also ten percent, probably ten percent of that ten percent were able to probably make something of themselves and and build a business. I mean, we talked to um, Josh from the Kratom story. And, and he also was one that uh, I feel him and Howard are just very savvy, no matter where they are and what life is thrown at them. They're able to push through it and have unbelievable resilience. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the podcast we did on leaders who have mental health issues and have a lot of trauma in their life can be really good leaders in times of transition and change. So I feel like uh, Howard was probably able to continue to be a leader no matter which environment he was in. And I think, he, I think he'd be very interesting to work with the professionals that are trying to create all these programs because I think he can really see two sides of the coin. He's not black and white. He sees a lot of grey. And I think he made a really good point by saying, you know, like, you know, for these people that are making these big decisions, have they ever, you know, put a needle in their arm, buried a family member? I mean, the chances of them burying a family member might be quite a bit higher because the states have an unbelievable amount of deaths through overdose. But I feel like he and people like him could really add tremendous value to the system. And, And I just don't think... They'll be given the chance to be heard, which I think is so frustrating.
2: Yeah, and it's it's amazing this strong mind that he has because it's so easy, as we know, to slip back in to addiction, as you know, we are just saying most people do, but he knows that it can't happen anymore. And that's one of the the main reason he said that basically keeps him from from starting any of this again is just he can't let these people down.
3: And I think like if I was in if I was in a situation that something horrible had happened to me, I would want to talk to people that had gone through the same thing. I would rather talk to them than a therapist or somebody that has studied it. I really believe that um, talking to people with lived experience is much more powerful in helping someone with recovery. People that have lived experience can tell another addict, hey, I survived. And I thrived, and I'm not saying I'm a victim anymore. Whereas I, I can't say that to an addict because I have no idea what they're going through. Like I, I'm not going to be pompous and be like, "Hey, dude, don't do drugs. I know your life's shit. <laughs> just deal with the shit."
2: Yeah, he was definitely he's definitely a role model for anyone facing that situation, and not just that, but just a, a great resource for people that that aren't really familiar with that lifestyle to. To have some insight in it on exactly what these people go through, because we just often hear it's they're addicted to drugs, it's bad. But you really got the the full story with Howard, so it was great that he was able to share it with us. This is a, I think this is a very memorable series.
3: Well, and I think that these stories are my m- most favorite to tell because not only are they powerful and inspiring, they give hope. I mean, twenty years ago, you would have looked at somebody like him and said, like, forget it he's, he's gone, he's gone to the system. I mean, and I probably say that sometimes when I see people that keep making the same mistakes, I'm like, Oh, God, they're in the system. That, that's just it for them. They'll just be in and out of the system the whole life. And I feel like there's a lot, there's not enough good news stories. But if there's one thing I can have this podcast do is I would like to help people tell their stories of fighting past all the pain. And, you know, one of the series, you know, Jill, that I'm working on right now is with a young guy, young guy, he's under 30, who got raised in challenging environment and um, had a crazy life by the time he was 16, just came out of jail a month ago. And I talked to him two days after coming out of jail, and I'm just helping him tell his story. And at the same time, interviewing his mom to have her perspective on how she was raised and Um, because she um, very much was and, and still is battling addiction. And just to take the audience through week by week, what's it like to get out of jail and try to get work and try to stay clean. So just every week I check in with him.
2: That's next time on Stand Up Speak Up. Thanks again for listening.